This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, it's all about me, the strange appeal of narcissism in speculative fiction. So, um... <sighs> it's obviously not all about me, me, no. as in me, Jules. No. <laughs> <laughs> it's about narcissism. Um, and, okay, so there's several reasons for why we're doing this episode. Uh, I think one of the most predominant ones is that Jules and I have been watching a fair amount of Marvel... Yeah, over the years. Over the years, <laughs> yeah. Um, and we spotted a trend. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we we kind of we kind of wanted to sort of pick up on that, but um, actually, this is a subject which has kind of been brewing in my mind for a long time, and it's something that um, I I have a, a not a secret thing for, but like I have a, a sort of a very a, an interest in. And I've had this kind of interest in it ever since I was in my first year of university when for a script writing module we were asked to watch the beginning of a film. And for the life of me, I don't even remember what this film was. But um, at the beginning of this film, you're presented this guy and uh, he's sort of lying in bed and he, he gets a call from his family member saying, hey, are you, you know, the party started, where are you, are you on your way? And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm just stuck in traffic. Um, I'll be there real soon. And he's still lying in bed. And you just sort of see him go through his morning and then at one point he gets into the car and he's doing the crossword as he's driving. Um, and that's kind of where it cut off. And as students, we were all asked to kind of assess what this character is like. Um, you know, what what do we know about him from the way that he sort of, from what was presented? And a lot of people immediately noted things like, oh, okay, well, he's messy. Um, he's a little bit lazy. He doesn't have good time management. And I remember looking at it and saying, he's arrogant and he has narcissistic tendencies. And no one else had said that. And um, I sort of, you know, it was presented, okay, but why, why, do you, why have you drawn this conclusion? Why have you drawn this conclusion? I said, well, very simply, um, first of all, you've got to be rather arrogant and to have narcissistic tendencies to get behind the wheel of a car and start doing a crossword as you're driving. You've got to be, you've got to have a certain level of confidence or, or the illusion of I'm a little bit bored, therefore it's acceptable for me to put everyone else's lives in danger so that I can do the crossword at the same time. But also to just so nonchalantly not care about other people, not sort of manage time properly with other people, that, that's a total lack of investment and stuff like that. And the thing that got me was that a lot of people liked this character. They said, oh, he's an engaging character. We like him. Um, he's interesting. He's funny. And I remember looking at it and saying, this person would be a nightmare to actually to know in person. So why is he so appealing as a character? 
So that's kind of just been, I've been chewing over that for a little while and I suddenly went, hey, we haven't done a Dissecting Dragons episode about this. So here we are <laughs> doing this episode. Um, and yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit about narcissism in fiction. Yeah, uh, and it's interesting. It's something that I think, I mean, we're going to go into more detail in a moment, but mm. recogni- it's more recognisable as a, a a phenomenon of psychology now, as, as a genuine issue, a genuine mm. state, if you like. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously, as I said, we'll get go into it in more detail, but it, it is really curious how it's popping up in quite so many films and books and things not necessarily always portrayed as a negative either. Um, for instance, without really thinking about this episode at all, I watched a film uh, last week, I believe, called Good on Paper, and it's by it. You know, it's by a female comedian, Elisa Schleisiger, and she played the main character. Mm-hmm. And it's basically based on an event that happened in her life. So she's effectively playing herself in mm-hmm. this film, um, and. It was all about her relationship with this guy who, looking back at it, was a textbook narcissist. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll illustrate the point a bit more later, but it was a case of, oh, God, that you know, this is a random film that Alan picked for us to watch, and then, like, here we are watching it, and I'm like, oh, God, Madeline mentioned doing an episode on this. <laughs> Better take some notes. Um, I also think it's it's curious because there's something in our culture in the West lately, and it's something I've noticed in the last couple of decades, so maybe it's me showing my age, but we're encouraged to be slightly more narcissistic Mm. as well Mm -hmm. because it's not a fixed state. It's not a case of you're born a narcissist and there's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) This is something that that you can work on. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So before we get started, let's, let's actually just sort of look at the foundation of narcissism. So a little bit about the background of uh, narcissism. The the word originates from the Greek myth of Narcissus. Narcissus in Greek myth was this incredibly beautiful young man. Um, the prophet, the blind prophet Tiresias um, of Oedipus Rex fame, uh, prophesied that Narcissus would live a very long life, so long as he never discovered himself. So there are several versions of the story which follow, um, and all of them involve Narcissus rejecting a lover. Well, most of them involve Narcissus rejecting a lover. So in one, you have a mountain nymph named Echo, who fell deeply in love with him, but was ultimately turned away. Distraught, she wandered around, fading to nothing, until all that was left was an Echo. Seeing this, Nemesis, the goddess of revenge, who I believe is a an aspect of Aphrodite, which doesn't really surprise me, um, Na- Nemesis got, got to work. So she lured Narcissus to a perfectly still pool of water to drink from. As Narcissus bent forward to drink, he caught sight of himself for the first time. Not realising it was just a reflection, because up until this point he hadn't seen a reflection because he'd kind of been kept from them. Um, He fell deeply in love and was unable to look away. 
Um, as he began to wither away, Aphrodite, in some versions, took pity on him and she transformed him into a white and golden flower, which is now known as a Narcissus. And you can tell Narcissus because instead of going, uh, sort of reaching towards the sun, they bend toward the water. Yes. So that's one version. Um, in another version, Narcissus actually spurned a young man named, um, I'm going to get this totally wrong, Emineus. I would have said Emineus, but you know. Emineus. <laughs> yeah, Emineus. Thank you. Um, heartbroken, Emineus cursed Narcissus um, before committing suicide outside of Narcissus' house. I think he just went up right up to the door and just killed himself. I also think that Narcissus actually gave him a sword. I don't know if he presented him with a sword to just say, go kill yourself. I'm not entirely certain. Um, but yeah, Emineus killed himself. Um, the gods answered his call um, for vengeance, and once again, Narcissus discovered his reflection in a pool of water and fell in love. In this version, however, realizing that he would never be able to attain the object of his desire, um, Narcissus actually killed himself um, and was once again transformed into a flower. The final one um, is actually a bit of a strange version, um, and it's it's a later version by a guy named uh, Pausanias, um, who yeah. was a Greek traveller. Um, and in which, in this version, version, Narcissus actually had an identical twin sister. The pair of them were incredibly close, and they did everything together. And Narcissus fell deeply in love with her. Unfortunately, his sister died, um, so Narcissus would go down to the river in order to look at his own reflection so that he could see something of his own sister. So he didn't he didn't fall in love with his own reflection, he was basically looking at it in order to see his sister. Once again, withers away, dies, gets transformed into a flower. So it's a cheery myth. Yeah, I mean, I've also heard the version where he sees his reflection in the river and he's so desperately trying to reach this beautiful person that he actually drowns. Okay, yeah. So, um, but basically it all ends the same. So. Yeah, it, all, it all ends the same. Obsession. I think it's worth at this point mentioning, I mean, the, the, the myth and where we get it from is, is really interesting. Um, I do want to mention just vanity in mm -hmm. general. Yeah. Um, now, there are some people who are more vain than others, and you can be vain about anything. You can be vain about your looks, you can be vain about something that you're actually not terribly good at, you can be vain at something that you are good at. Everybody has a seat of vanity set somewhere inside themselves. Mm. Um, and, and that's just the way it is, and being aware of where it is, and being aware that that is the thing that people who want to manipulate you will appeal to is a really useful thing to know about yourself. Yes. Um, Obviously, in the story of Narcissus, the vanity seems to be very much weighted towards his appearance. Mm. But I think um, some of the stories kind of have him being a bit of a dick anyway, as yeah. in he, he's aware of how attractive he is. He's aware of the effect he has on other people and no one's ever quite good enough for him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, certainly, we there are accounts just of him turning away all lovers and, and rather cruelly as well, just spurning yeah. them. Um, so... I mean, and, and that's an interesting aspect of it, but I think 
it's worth mentioning at this point that vanity is an aspect of narcissism. It is not the same thing. No. Um, simply because I think people tend to get those two things confused. And the thing with narcissism as, as a collective psychological issue mm. is that it is comprised of vanity and various other aspects which we will go into. Yes, absolutely. So let's actually talk about what narcissism is. Um, so as Jules has kind of touched on there, narcissism is a form of self-obsession in which a person dedicates a great deal of attention and admiration to themselves. This can be in regards to their physical appearance, their skills, or their abilities. Um, a narcissist usually appears very self-confident, and there's usually a reason for their self-obsession. So they might very well be talented or good-looking, or they will have been put in a position where they were praised a great deal by others, usually from a young age. Um, in particular, narcissism in children is often linked to parents and other authority which is like authority figures, um, but longer, and other authority figures treating the child as particularly special and setting them apart from their um, contemporaries, so other kids, essentially. Yeah, I mean, that it's quite a difficult one because most parents, if they're doing parenting right, make their own children feel special. Yes. <laughs> but um, yes, this is a very exaggerated form, as in uh, is almost literally telling the child constantly that they are cut out for greater things than the others are not their equals. The others are not the equals is the, the big bit. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, one example from history, which I think is quite a good one, is that of um, Richard II, who became king at 10 years old. Hmm. Before that, he wasn't given a great deal of attention by his father, who was uh, Edward the Black Prince, Yeah. Um, simply because he wasn't that close to the throne. A lot of other people had to die first <laughs> before he got there. Yeah. Um, so it was a combination of the fact that he was largely ignored and raised by tutors and then suddenly he was told he was one of the most important people in the world, in the universe even. He was put there by God. Yeah. He was that important. that God had literally touched him with a finger and told him he was going to be king of England. And that was what all his advisors and sycophants and tutors were pushing on him. Unsurprisingly, Richard II, um, for everything else he did, and he was an incredibly intelligent, charismatic man who was good looking and had an awful lot of gifts. Um, and he championed things like literature and literacy and and various other things, poetry, you know, the, the arts, fashion, things like that. All that bloomed in his court. But his massive, massively narcissistic combined with very insecure personality meant that he thought he should rule absolutely. Mm -hmm. So he ended up alienating his nobles and we all know that he did not come to the best of ends, no. having been forced to abdicate his throne. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was not a good ending. Um, it, it, was a, it was almost a delusion by the end, essentially. Yeah, I mean, and there was some PTSD which wouldn't have been recognised in the 14th century all woven in with it. Yeah. But basically it was one big, big sort of psychological knot whereby he could not get past the fact that he was not the most important person in the universe. Yeah. And it wasn't entirely his fault that he couldn't do that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, strangely enough, and what a lot of people don't always realise is that Narcissism is actually often linked with very low self-esteem. 
um, and narcissists will put on airs in order to compensate for that. Um, and this can actually sometimes happen unconsciously. So a narcissist might not actually be aware that they have a low self-esteem. Um, in fact, they might say, oh no, I have a very high self-esteem. And then tests will show that actually they, they don't at all. Um, narcissists can also be pathological liars, um, exaggerating and sometimes even fabricating achievements um, in order to kind of just make themselves appear more important and accomplished. Um, and they often make conversations and situations all about them. Yeah, um, something I find interesting about this aspect of it, and it sort of touches on your next point in a minute as mm. well, is that th there is such a thing as kind of an ingrained cultural narcissism. Mm. And I I say this cautiously and not casting aspersions on anybody. Yeah. But when you get communities of, of people who have generally grown up being very underprivileged and very yeah. poor, um, this often comes with this very prickly sense of pride, this, this touchiness about their self-worth even though they wouldn't see it that way because they would say you know what well, we're the ones who are clued in we're the ones who know what where it's at kind of thing we don't need your we don't need your handout we don't need your your education etc etc um but on some deep level they're aware that they they're limited by the very attitude that they've learned from their parents and their grandparents and the culture around them it's something you find in the very poor parts of of america in the deep south and it goes across race it you know it, it's it's really not limited to to one ethnicity or culture it's something in the deep south that was actually inherited from immigrants that came from the north of england who at the time were generally poor quite ill-educated had that sort of we will kill you over a look type attitude and i do mean that quite literally <laughs> um and also from the scots from the from the uneducated scots who went over there at the same time yeah and it's been something that's been passed on culture to culture. And it is kind of a form of narcissism because it's this desperate protective layer to stop people, you know, the whole sort of, I will kill you over a look or you disrespected me. I will shoot you like a dog kind of thing, which is literally what used to happen and can still happen in these sorts of areas mm. where there are guns available anyway. Um, that That is from this perspective of narcissism masking this huge sense of inadequacy. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, narcissists, as you know, we've kind of touched on just there, um, usually react very poorly to criticism, um, and particularly they react very poorly to being caught out on their lies, um, and can subsequently become very verbally and occasionally physically violent. So Jules's examples there. <laughs> um, they are also more likely to suffer from mental health issues, including depression and anxiety, and they are quite likely to fall prey to drug addiction as well. And as we obviously touched on in a previous episode, addiction generally masks a lack. Yeah. So, you know, there are people who can um, experiment with chemical pleasures and be fine, and it's a recreational thing, and there are people who get completely addicted and absorbed by chasing that high and usually that's those are the people who are missing something internally yeah absolutely 
Um, now, one thing I do want to touch on um, before we go on is that it is common and fairly natural for children and young people to exhibit some narcissistic and occasionally psychopathic relation—sorry, uh, behaviors. Um, but there is a difference between self-worth and high self-esteem and vanity and narcissism. Um, so I think I, I, it always gets me really annoyed when people are like, oh, young people these days, they're so narcissistic. And I'm like, no, young people in general have narcissistic tendencies. It, it's part of the, the journey out of childhood and into adulthood is learning that you are not the centre of the universe. In fact, you might not be a very important part of the universe at all, mm-hmm. or even an important part of the world. You might be completely average and learning that actually that doesn't matter. Yeah. The only person that really matters to is you, and that's a state that you can change. You are the author of your own destiny, your own fate, in as far as your society will um, make it possible for you. I mean, obviously, we're talking places like um, North Korea or, or you that are very repressed, yeah. very, very repressed where you can't actually do things. But in general, in the West, you are the author of your own fate. doesn't matter what disadvantage you started with. You can go somewhere. Absolutely. Um, now there have been some arguments of you know researchers who say that there actually has still been a rise in narcissism in children over the last few decades, particularly in Western society. But as previously discussed, narcissism in children it's different from sort of narcissistic behaviors and vanity. Narcissism in children is often kind of uh, often comes as, as a result of parents basically saying you're God's gift to earth, you're better than everybody else, you are superior, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it's really interesting, and I, I will try not to go off on a tangent, I think it's really interesting that actually the children who have a natural sense of empathy and are even slightly empathic, as in they can feel how other people feel because they're so good at putting cues together. Yeah. And, and clues and things and, and being able to recognise patterns from a very early age. Those children are very unusual. That's usually something you acquire yeah. as you get older and you acquire it through, unfortunately, having suffered a few things like losses or not winning or finding out that actually maybe you're not as good at something as you think you are. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's worth just recognising that. Okay, so onto the body, <laughs> main body of the discussion. Um, from everything we've just said, you might very well think, hang on, narcissist doesn't sound like a particularly nice person to be around. <laughs> so why are we attracted to narcissists? And that's that's the interesting thing. If I mean, if even if you're not talking in terms of um, a, a relationship with someone who's narcissistic. Mm. Yeah. Um, you might be talking in terms of a friendship because you, you it, that, again, that can be, it's someone with a bit of extra sparkle and yeah. somehow for a little while, if you sit in their shadow, you feel that their sparkle sort of is thrown over you as well. Yeah, absolutely. And this can also, you know, when we talk about being attracted to it, we, we talk about, as Jules said, this can be romantic re- relationships, this can be um, friendships, this can also just be, you know, TV personalities or actors or or things like that or characters which is what we'll get into in a minute 
Um, one thing I, I, I kind of... I, I want you to picture this. Dear listener, dear listener, picture this. A beautiful person steps into your life. They have achieved amazing things, they're confident, um, and they, you know, they're smooth talking, and they seem to have everything going for them. Like, they have life down to AT. Um, that is, and this person is a narcissist, and what happens is people often fall for their initial glam. Uh, however, what usually happens is that the relationship will fall apart when you find that the narcissist doesn't actually have room for anyone else in their life beyond others being a prop for their own ego. So narcissists make everything about them and they won't allow themselves to be questioned. Um, relationships will also often fall apart quicker if the narcissist has also fabricated or exaggerated their achievements because the more time you spend with a narcissist, the more, you know, the quicker the truth comes out. And at that point, the narcissist having been questioned or caught is likely to become very unpleasant and aggressive. And I should say sometimes narcissists do turn that aggression on themselves as well, um, but it, it's also often external. Um, yeah, it's um, one, of, I mean, I was talking about the package of things that go into making up a narcissist and obviously yeah. you have vanity there as well. And sometimes low self-esteem or the yeah. sense that they actually don't have an awful lot of worth. One thing you might find is that a narcissist often may have lots and lots of friends, but they don't have any close friends. Because anyone who's very close to them will see through them, essentially. Um, so, yeah, they, they, they might just sort of flit around a little bit and not actually have any, any very deep, meaningful connections with people. Um, the other thing to recognise about why narcissists are attractive is that they are quite manipulative and they are usually quite charismatic so they can appear interested and engaged and even empathetic to begin with so it's not that someone steps into the room and you immediately recognize them as a narcissist that isn't always the the case sometimes it can just seem to be a person who seems genuinely nice interesting beautiful um, and seems to be engaged with what's going on and it's only as you spend more time with them that you start to notice the narciss narcissistic behaviours and that this is actually a toxic kind of relationship. Yeah, or you might actually not notice them. Mm. You might not be able to. By the time you're in a position to actually really see them, by the time the mask is off, you might actually be so entangled that you don't really know... You I mean, you're not capable of recognising them. Yeah. Or, you're second guessing yourself because if we're talking at the the absolute extreme end of the spectrum here where you are say in a relationship with a toxic narcissist mm -hmm. what they're very good at doing initially is drawing you in by making you feel like the center of the world yeah and then in a very almost sociopathic type way um and they will literally sweep you off your feet if we're talking in the romantic sense yeah and then gradually it'll be chipping away, chipping away at things, chipping away all the time and, and gaslighting you so that you start questioning your version of, of reality, your version of things that, that you believe happened, your version of arguments. Yeah. Um, you'll start to feel like you're the one who is the burden. Uh, you're the one who is generally in the wrong. You're the one who is the one at fault. Um, and after a while, that after that's been going a while, even the person who started really level with a, a decent 
self-esteem, who didn't really have any big hang-ups or anything, has got to the point where they no longer really know what reality is because this person has just knocked the props out from them so constantly. And it's actually really difficult to then get away from this person. Yeah. Narcissists also kind of will target people um, or will take advantage of people who like to take care of others. So a narcissist might, you know, might leave someone in saying, oh, I'm bad, I'm a monster, I need someone to take care of me. I need, oh, you make me good, you make me right. You know, a narcissist can also can basically come off as, oh, I'm a terrible person, but you make me want to be better and, you know, better in the world and stuff like that. And so they can appeal to people who want to help others, um, yeah. which can be how they sort of, they, they reel them in. Um, I mean, if you get your sense of self-worth from what you can do for other people, then you are vulnerable. Yeah, to to a narcissist. I mean, this is this is something that's you know very common is that people who suffer from low self-esteem issues um, are often targets of abuse from narcissistic people. Uh, or sorry, people who suffer from self-esteem issues or who were targets of abuse from a narcissistic parent or authority figure. Um, when they were a child, are more likely to be targeted by a narcissist um, as an adult or as a as sort of as a teenager. Um, the narcissist's unending confidence can be particularly attractive here, um, and it can also give the victim an initial confidence boost because here you have this amazing person who's who's done so much, and they're interested in you. They're saying you're amazing. They're saying you're wonderful. That's a big pick me up, particularly if you've always struggled with your own self esteem. Um, usually, a narcissist will pick on people they feel that they can fool, manipulate, and control. Um, or who they think are going to be a good source of praise and love, essentially. Yeah, or occasionally what will happen is they will have already centred somebody within their... I mean, if we're talking a narcissist, someone who is narcissistic, but is more of a fantasist with it and mm -hmm. actually doesn't have an awful lot to back up their claims. Yeah. Sometimes they will have centred themselves on someone within that fantasy as being the person they should be with. Yeah. And in the right, or if you want to look at it the other way, the really wrong set of circumstances, that person then becomes involved with, with the narcissist and kind of continues the cycle by feeding it, unaware because they're, they're unaware that they're part of this narcissistic fantasy. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is largely what happens in that film I mentioned good on paper mm -hmm. um, she was a female comedian she was also trying to break into films as well and she wasn't having an awful lot of luck usually because and I fully sympathize with this she wasn't very good at keeping her mouth shut at the wrong moment mm -hmm. um, which is something I really you know I relate to that I get that feeling I know what that's like um, <laughs> and this this guy engineered a sort of meet cute with her whereby he ended up sitting next to her on, on the plane on the way back from an audition that had gone badly. And they got talking and she was kind of like, you know, she talks you through it in the film. She's kind of like, well, to say I wasn't physically attracted to him was an understatement. But she obviously had that little bit of her personality that, you know, there were things she liked about him. He was intelligent. He was funny. He was really considerate to her, etc. And... 
she was kind of like, yeah, I don't really, don't, don't really fancy him or anything. But this is someone I hang out with all the time because he's fun and we have fun together and he's really helpful and supportive of me and my career, etc. Yeah. And her friend was kind of like, yeah, I don't think that's all he's after, you know. And the friend kept pointing out warning signs, and she was like, no, 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 it's fine, it's fine, it's fine. It's just kind of like my new best friend, kind of thing. And um, it was one low day, one low day for him. And he played, she obviously had that little bit of a personality where someone she cared about could definitely get in and play on her sympathies. And that's exactly what he did. And then the next thing you know, they're going out together. And then she started to notice anomalies. Like, um, you know, she said that he, he's rather sorry. He said that he had a house in Beverly Hills. He was just waiting for everything to be finished, being refurbished. And then he'd be moving in. And then she discovered he lived with two housemates. Um, somewhere that was very definitely not Beverly Hills. Yeah, and it was things like he grossly exaggerated his job and various other things, and he kept making excuses. He kept lying on top of it, and finally she had an argument, and he was kind of like, "Oh no, it's really awful. My mother's got cancer," and she obviously immediately backed down, like somebody who was at all empathetic would do. Yeah, and the lies piled on top of that as well, and it was just kind of. Eventually, it got to the stage where she she genuinely couldn't ignore it anymore. But yeah, I mean, if she had been slightly more vulnerable as a person, mm-hmm. then she would have been really, really screwed. And I, mean, I think she talked about it on um, Seth Rogen's podcast, and he kind of said, "Well, if you don't, you've you've got to do something with this story because it is, you know, this this is kind of you've got to turn that into art, kind of thing." Yeah. Um, which is what she's done with this film, and you're watching it, and he's. He's kind of a drip. I mean, you're thinking, what is it with this guy? He's not appealing. The actor does a fantastic job of playing someone who's very not appealing, but who kind of name drops and says that they do all these these fantastic things and they make all this money, etc., without it being too overt. Mm-hmm. But you, the the watcher, are sat there viewing the whole thing, going, there's something not right with that guy. There's something not right with that guy, but I can see why she can't see it. Yeah. And by the end, you're like, yeah, textbook narcissism, because he's not sorry he's lied. He's sorry that she found out she's ruined it all. She's ruined the fantasy by challenging him on it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, um, it happens to a lot of people, actually. (laughs) That's the problem. Yeah. It happens to a lot of people. Obviously, without, like, the high profile side of things. Yeah. Without, perhaps, the entertainment value. Yes. (laughs) So... Why are narcissists so attractive in fiction? I think one of the main reasons that we kind of like narcissistic characters is that we don't actually have to deal with them for too long in fiction. Well, yeah. I think it's the option of, um, like, the mental equivalent of going to a party and getting to hang out with the really, really cool kid that everyone wants to hang out with. Yeah. (laughs) Um... Remember, you know, narcissists can actually be pleasant um, and exciting company in short stints um, when their glamour is still there. So you can actually be friends with a narcissist, you know, that you only see occasionally or know a narcissist that you only see occasionally and think they're a good laugh when we're there, but I wouldn't be able to live with them. Um, Yeah, I I think it's like if you're good at putting good boundaries in place, you can probably get away with it. mm -hmm. You know... Um, it's, it, 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 it's when you're not as good at 
at putting those boundaries in place and, and yeah. then you start falling for the bullshit. <laughs> exactly. Um, it's usually only after you've been with a narcissist for a while, which could be several hours to days to weeks or months, even years, um, that their behaviour starts to get tiring, that their behaviour starts to have a really negative effect. Um, of course, in movies and books, however, you're only getting brief snapshots of them. Um, you know, leaving less time for people to get tired of them. Um, and usually if you have a TV show, which is obviously, you know, following a narcissistic character um, or a long book series, the narcissistic character, particularly if it's a main character, will usually be going through some kind of growth or change. Good example of this is Loki in the Loki series, which we'll be talking a little bit about. Yeah, um, and I later. think it's it's also worth mentioning the fact that being a narcissist isn't the isn't the sum total of someone's parts necessarily. Yeah. So yes, you can have someone and say, well, they act like this ninety percent of the time. I'm going to say they're a narcissist. Mm -hmm. um, you can also have people who have some narcissistic tendencies, and they're pretty good on about eighty percent of the spectrum. But yeah. that last twenty percent means that they're kind of a real asshole some of the time. Exactly. Yeah. And and those people are interesting because it's like adding a spice to a dish that would be otherwise quite bland if we're talking in terms of storytelling and characterization. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Plus, there is the thing where not all narcissists are blowing smoke up your ass. Some some of them are genuinely very competent very capable people who have achieved genuinely great things yeah. and their arrogance is totally justified in some respects yeah. the, the fact that they then view everybody else as not really a person is kind of an issue but yeah absolutely um another reason why narcissists are so attractive in fiction um is because you're not actually in a relationship with them <laughs> sorry guys um, but unlike in real life, where any kind of relationship demands give and take, a fictional character does not engage in an actual relationship with their audience. You are a witness to their story only, so the expectation isn't going to be the same. It's why you can sort of get on really well with a, with a narcissistic character in a book and be like, oh, that's my book boyfriend, um, because you don't actually need to have that book boyfriend come home <laughs> at any point and engage with you as a person because they don't have to, because they can't, because they're fictional. <laughs> well, yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like um, my low-key crushes for, uh, for characters in books who are actually probably psychopaths. Mm. And it's like, yeah, but I don't have to hang out with them all the time. <laughs> you know? <laughs> If I actually met them in person, I would probably hate them, kind of thing. Yeah, I can literally put them on the shelf whenever I want. It's yep. um. <laughs> not a damn thing they can do about it. Exactly. Um, if the hero of a story is a narcissist, they will usually have some kind of terrible awakening moment where their bubble is burst. So Iron Man or Doctor Strange, excellent example of that. Or they will show that the root of their narcissism is actually based on low self-esteem or comes as a result of some kind of abuse. So Goodwill Hunting um, plays into that. Loki plays into that. Um, these are engaging for an audience and they all link into character growth and development. 
Um, the fact is sometimes we love narcissistic characters because A, we want to see them fail and then have to pick up the pieces or because we want to see them grow. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think Goodwill Hunting's a really good example and it's also a good example of that kind of um, poverty-struck and slash ghetto mindset that mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier where it is actually a type of narcissism as a form of defence because of everything that you've lived lived through or lived with yeah and it's masking this huge sense of inadequacy um the thing with goodwill hunting is that he was willing to actually just bite the hand that was being held out to him saying look we're willing to put you through university you you have a brilliant mind you you know you have something that not everybody else around you has you could do amazing things and he is willing to literally spit in people's eye over it and just be a janitor for the rest of his life just because you know, because screw everyone. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it is, it's interesting, that movie's very interesting, I think, because he's doing that, because he's making the, the the very true and excellent point, which is that there is nothing wrong with being a janitor. Yeah. That there is nothing wrong with doing any kind of uh, labour work, sort of doing building, having multiple jobs, that does not make you a lesser person. Uh, but the fact of the matter was that it wasn't that he he actually had that mindset. It was that he was so angry about other people feeling that, other the, looking down on people like him um, and his friends and stuff like that, that he had separated this into two worlds and he basically said if i become part of that world i'm sort of betraying everything that i am now but i think ultimately it was it kind of came down to a fear um and the thing that really got me was that you had this his best friend who was like listen you little shit (laughs) you have a chance to go make a a difference um in the world you're being offered something amazing you know a free ride that isn't available to a lot of us because of circumstances and you are denying it just out of some out of spite um yeah that's that's not actually a good thing it was the line every day i come here to pick you up and i pray that today is the day you won't be here that really got me um so yeah it's um it's not necessarily like the feel-good hit of the summer film-wise but I think it really does a good job of tackling the sort of uh, narcissism slash inadequacy problem that you get when you obviously when you've got someone with a brilliant mind who mm-hmm. hasn't been taught to nurture or or value that in themselves and at the same time has got this prickly sort of um, poor person pride yeah. from that particular area of the world as well. Yeah, yeah it's this sense of you know no i belong here i can only be here and i think that there's it's good to sort of have pride in in your origins it's good to have pride in your community um but i don't think it's a betrayal to step outside of that community if there's an opportunity which you feel could actually do you some good yeah absolutely i mean if people are if people are saying you that by accepting uh, a chance at better education or at a better job or something that you genuinely feel passionate about or have an interest in that you are somehow betraying your origins then they are trying to hold you back 
Yeah. Um, For their own reasons. Exactly. And this, you know, this goes hand in hand with the fact that there is nothing lesser or less, you know, you're not a less worthy person if you don't have a high education or things like that. No, absolutely. Um, Another reason why narcissists make for good characters, they can offer some excellent comedic moments. You know, narcissists in fiction will sometimes say and do things that we wouldn't dare to do, um, which can make them very engaging on screen. Um, Narcissistic villains in particular can make for great characters. And I would argue that there's a potential link here between narcissistic behaviours and unintentional queer coding, um, as often meticulousness and interest in your physical appearance, for example, and pride in your physical appearance is equated to homosexuality. Um, and in fact, I'm pretty sure Freud jumped on that train and said that narcissism was <laughs> something to do with ho- no, that homosexuality was something to do with narcissism, I think. Yeah, I can see how he would have made that leap. And I can see how people would have made that leap anyway. Um, and this is not me saying I agree with it at all. I'm just like following the logic. It's a case of there's something about you that's different that means you don't fit in with anyone else. So your your options are to believe that you are an outsider or mm-hmm. to believe that you are somehow superior. You are them plus. Yeah. You, are the, you are the model 2000. And um, the people with narcissistic tendencies go into the, well, I guess I'm the model 2000 variety then. (laughs) And that's not necessarily wrong. That can be, um, that can actually be a kind of healthy way of coping with a situation whereby you're, you're almost like the last unicorn. You are the only one of your kind kind of thing. Yeah. Um, Where it becomes an issue is when you move out into the wider world and you find out again that you are not the center of the universe and if you try and adhere to the principle that you are, then you are going to have a very rocky ride. It's the it's the big fish, uh, the big fish argument. Big fish in a little pond. Um, move that big fish, and suddenly. Uh, finally, the last reason why people might actually find narcissists engaging in fiction, and that is that they're not actually narcissists. I see this all the time where you have a character who's labelled as a narcissist. They're like, oh, he's such a narcissist. Um, um, And I'm actually going to talk about gender in a second here. Uh, But you get, yes, male narcissist. Oh, he's such a narcissist. Um, And actually, in terms of narcissism as a kind of, you know, not a condition, but, you know, actual narcissism, the character is not a narcissist. They may have some narcissistic tendencies. They may have a lot of self-confidence. They might be very preoccupied with their appearance. They might even just be a little bit dickish. Um, But they're not actually a narcissist in the manipulative, total self-absorption way. They just kind of labelled as a narcissist. So I think a lot of people go, oh, you know, I kind of like narcissistic characters, but none of the characters <laughs> that they like are actually narcissists at all. It's like you, you wouldn't if you met an actual one in real life. Yeah. You know? <laughs> or even if you had to spend one with an actual narcissistic character. Yeah, because, I mean, if you think about it, if you have a narcissistic character who had, undergoes no kind of character growth mm. and just literally acts like a textbook narcissist... If you made them the hero of the story, that would be a very boring story because nothing would happen except 
I'm going to lie about this or I'm going to talk about how great I am. This person's going to get bored with it and then we're on to the next one. Absolutely, yeah. Um, Small caveat. Uh, One thing I have noticed is that when it comes to narcissistic characters... Um, people, you know, fan favourites of narcissistic characters, they almost always tend to be male. You don't get a lot of narcissistic female characters. Uh, You get narcissistic female villains, but not a lot of narcissistic female main characters. Um, Because it just, you just don't tend to do it. I think there's, there isn't the same level of tolerance for it. Yeah, I think you're right if we're talking in terms of popular fiction, popular films. I'm trying to think of examples. I can come up with a few examples, but generally it's almost entirely in literary fiction where they decided to explore this as a female principle. Yeah. So things like Margaret Atwood's The Robber Bride, for example, Mm -hmm. where the antagonist, Zinnia, is almost a classic textbook narcissist. And the entire book turns into sort of this... Weirdly, it's almost like a literary thriller, but without anybody really dying or anything. Yeah. Um, where Zinnia is kind of like, has she been, you know, everyone assumes she's crying wolf. And by the end of the book, you're like, she might have not been crying wolf that time. <laughs> she might have genuinely needed help. Um, it's a, it's an interesting book looking at female friendships. Um, and then there's Notes on a Scandal. And I'm afraid I can't remember the name of the author, but I would say that the the older woman in that who has this frustrated desire for the beautiful young female teacher Mm -hmm. and enjoys holding the fact that this teacher is having an affair with one of her her teenager students over her head is in fact a toxic narcissist as well yeah i mean can you think of any who are the heroes of their stories um i think off the top of my head no and you know even if we did i think they probably think a minute um i don't there's a a book called uh oh god (laughs) basically basically it's a retelling of of mulan and it it features a queer female lead Mm -hmm. who you know goes on to sort of i think in the second book she's going to go on and become sort of like um conquer this fantasy china Mm -hmm. and yeah, you could argue that she's a bit of a narcissist, but I think the more important thing there is that she is and um she is a very morally grey character and that she you know, she is probably very sociopathic. I think that's the more important thing. Yeah. Um I'd also argue that Kirsten White's uh, gender bent historical saga about Vlad the Impaler only she's made um Vlad into ladder a, a female ruler mm-hmm. conqueror um ladder i would say is genuinely a narcissist in fact looking back um vlad the impaler may well have been a narcissist yeah. and for very good reason considering his history yeah absolutely okay so um let's get into the meat of our f- of of not necessarily our favorite but fan favorite narcissists yes <laughs> Um, let's start with Marvel, because Marvel are really good at, at doing the narcissist. So we've mentioned these three, which is Loki, Iron Man, and Doctor Strange. Um, I'm just going to start with Loki. Um, Loki's a really interesting one, because of course Loki started out as, as this 
villainous character who yeah. you know in in the first one it's like okay he's trying to he, he he just seems a little bit misguided if that makes sense um like still 100% villain he's still trying to commit mass murder um but he's kind of doing it in this very patriotic sense if that makes sense um and then <laughs> And you compare Loki of the first Thor movie to Loki of uh, the Avengers Assemble, where he's just come in to sort of onto Earth and is just murdering people left, right, and centre. Like that's a big jump. That's a big jump. And yeah, he here he's very much sort of I'm a god. Um, uh, you should all kneel before me. You know, he, he, this this is narcissism which has jumped up, probably as a result of trauma. Um, to the Loki that we are now seeing in the recent Loki series, who who I feel very much like the, the writers of Marvel said, actually, we kind of want to take a more sympathetic tone with him. So we're sort of going to brush a few things under the carpet and kind of rework his character a tiny bit. But Tom yes, Hiddleston gives such a convincing performance that I think a lot of people are just willing to let it go. They, they absolutely get away with it in that respect because of Tom Hiddleston. Yeah. And we ignore the blatant misogyny he'd been displaying up until that point as well. Yeah. Um, but no, it, in terms of Marvel, Marvel Cinematic Universe, he's a really great character and he goes on a very interesting journey. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure that it follows the same way in the comics. But, you know, that's fine because the comics are their own thing as well. Yeah. I think it depends on the comics because, you know, there are... Yeah. It's not yeah. written by just one person, no, is not, it? So you know, I think that there are a few versions where certainly we, we've seen a lot more of Loki in more sympathetic kind of lights. Even Loki joining the Avengers in some cases. Um, what's interesting to me is Loki from the mythology. Now, remember, in terms of Norse mythology, we have very little in terms of any kind of written texts or things like that. In fact, pretty much the entirety of what we know about Norse mythology um, comes from the prose and the poetic Edda. Yeah. Um, and within that, Loki definitely does display some narcissistic tendencies. Um, but it... it in quite an interesting way, and it really does depend on the way that it's framed. Um, and I think the problem is that a lot of people read it now and they see these very sort of narcissistic tendencies and um, they context has been removed, which makes it very difficult to understand. But it does mean that Loki variants do tend to be narcissistic. <laughs> I meant variants there. I didn't actually mean anything to do with a TV show. <laughs> uh, but I, I did just mean... Variants. The literal variants. Um, <laughs> uh, te do tend to be depicted as quite narcissistic. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, obviously we just mentioned about the comics and the fact mm. that things are, things are always different. Um, in Loki's case, I just think it's... If you're looking at sort of the mythology, the reimaginings, the the comics, and, and everything else, it still comes through as quite narcissistic. But you've got to think about the context. So, in the same way that a lot of Russian folk heroes to us are horrific mm. and come across as really not very heroic and quite narcissistic, and the same with some of the Greek heroes as well. Oh yeah. Um, 
in the context of the time, they would absolutely have been considered, you know, the very flower of manhood kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> Simply because of the context. I mean, it, it in in Russian folklore, um, the ability to be cunning and deceive your enemies and to take what you want like a man should, you know, that that's all stuff that was really celebrated. Mm. And in the same way, strength, prowess were celebrated over things like kindness or compassion in in greek mythology mm-hmm. um and in 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 nordic tradition um cunning and prowess in battle and again the ability to take what you want and be strong were celebrated generally over things over over the more softer things that came in with, with perhaps more the more christian type mythologies and yeah. you can even find reflex reflections of that in uh the pre in the celtic and pre-celtic and saxon type pre-christian saxon mythologies as well yeah i just i think that's really interesting um the only (laughs) the other thing with loki is that in in sort of mythology mythological terms um he was literally the personification of mischief or chaos Mm -hmm. as well so it's like every time loki disappears for eight and a half months everyone starts sweating and it's kind of like he's going to be giving birth again is it going to be half dead is it going to be a six-legged horse that looks really evil is it is it going to be a giant fucking snake or a massive wolf what the fuck is it this time and the relief when it turns out to just be a child (laughs) i do like i do love that which is just (laughs) where's loki we haven't seen him in a few months oh no oh no here he goes again (laughs) this is actually a funny little thing in the sort of the the loki series where he's talking to sylvie and she's like you know there must have been some princesses or princes and he went a little bit of both and i'm like according to mythology tom hiddleston it was more than a little bit of both (laughs) yeah you tried everything you You... tried everything and the things they haven't even thought of yet (laughs) you rogue um so yeah (laughs) anyway so loki's a very interesting character um let's talk about iron man i think that's an interesting one because i mean this is something he kind of shares with dr strange who we'll get Mm. onto in a minute but um iron man kind of epitomizes certainly from the marvel cinematic universe to start with someone who has brilliance and the money behind him to go far because his father was very much the same and yeah. never really stops to ask whether he should do something simply because he can he's always chasing the more effective rocket the faster car etc yeah and he it's it's egocentricity um there's definitely narcissism involved but he's not unredeemable no the thing the thing that's interesting for me is that Tony Stark is sort of labelled as a narcissist throughout the series, and I completely agree with that in terms of the first film. He is a narcissist in that. 100% a narcissist. Um, when it comes to... But but earlier on, early on in the first film, he obviously goes through this very terrible trauma, which actually gives him this great sense of sort of... this sense of responsibility um, and empathy, which is you know which changes him which creates iron man which is a consequence of that iron man isn't a um 
vanity project in in those films it's not that at all it, it's it, it comes as a form of consequence where he's kind of understanding his own actions um he's also an interesting character because his narcissism as jules has said comes from the fact that first of all he's rich second of all he is brilliant in terms of he he is a fantastic and amazing um scientist he has in the comics you know he has like seven doctorates or something like that i mean the guy is very smart he's also physically very capable and things like that so you know those those are big ticks um in terms of why he has that self-confidence but he also has a very large a, a lot of that this kind of this self self-reliance this you know this inverse where he's only looking at himself comes from the fact that his parents died when he was young um in the you know despite how marvel tried to sort of rewrite it his father was abusive to him his father was abusive in the comics even physically abusive sometimes um his father wasn't really engaged with tony as a child um, and so there had to have been a lot of self-reliance. So I think he was he was ignored by his parents, then surrounded by people who said, you're brilliant, you're amazing. Um, and so a, a lot of it is to do with this, this massive act. And we know that he isn't totally irredeemably a narcissist because he does still get on with people like Pepper Potts, who doesn't take crap from him, you know, um, and he does have long-standing relationships, which is not something that someone who's full narcissist can usually maintain. Um, so he does actually still have that level of empathy. Um, but it was why in the in the other films they're like, oh well, it says you're a complete narcissist and stuff like that. And I used and I used to think he's not a narcissist at this point. He definitely has narcissistic tendencies. Um, he definitely does kind of tend to think inwards, but those are patterns of behaviour which he is kind of... he's changing, he's pushing against. Um, and so I think, I feel like in the sort of the later ones, whenever they talk about Tony Stark being a narcissist, he's... I would argue that he's not really a narcissist towards the end. Yes at the beginning, less so at the end. Yeah, I don't think he ever completely frees himself from his egocentricity, but it yes. expands enough that it starts to include other people. He's not as distant from them as yeah. he once was. Absolutely. Oh, no, he's got ego for miles. I completely agree with that. Um, but it's not, yeah, I, I guess it depends how you decide to class just, you know, at what level does something become narcissistic? Um this is interesting because to me, Doctor Strange is even more of a narcissist than Tony Stark. Yeah, um, I I'd kind of agree with that. Doctor Strange has got your classic god complex, which, having worked with many surgeons, I have to say most of them do have to some degree. And that's, yeah. and honestly, you actually want them to have that because mm. somebody who is going to be cutting into a human body and stitching things together, someone who has got the moxie to do that, absolutely better bloody believe that they could do it. Yeah. Because having self-doubt midway through some sort of brain surgery is not great. No. For anybody involved, but especially not for the patient. No. <laughs> so um, I'm not surprised he's got the, the God complex. He's obviously very intelligent. He would have to be to in order to, to get to where he is to be the top brain surgeon he actually becomes and yeah. he's got there through hard work you can't be a brain surgeon just by being intelligent and having a good memory 
Yeah. Um, unfortunately, a lot of work is involved. He then loses all that because he is narcissistic enough, it's certainly in the films, to mm-hmm. be answering his phone mm-hmm. <laughs> while driving a car in a storm on something that could be rightfully called Dead Man's Curb. <laughs> yeah, and speeding as well. And speeding as well. The rules don't apply to him, which is a textbook narcissist type thing. So he absolutely has some of it. Yeah. What I like about him and what has always made him my favourite Marvel character, so I don't know what that says about me, is the fact that everything he does, he when you know he goes through the whole sort of very selfish, this is affecting me, not really thinking about how he's affecting other people, etc. Yeah. Um, uh, or how he's worrying them and everything else he's doing. He goes off and, you know, discovers magic. That's obviously not what he's trying to discover, but discovers it and it's kind of like, okay, well, I'll accept it. I'll work hard. I'll do it better than everyone else because that's the way I operate. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, through hard work, becomes very accomplished. So I think it's the whole sort of having some aptitude and becoming good at something through hard work that I really appreciate in that character. It's not kind of like, ah, oh, you were born with these special powers. Kind of yeah, I agree. It's a, it's an interesting aspect of Doctor Strange in that he he doesn't just assume that everything comes for him. He He's narcissistic because he got to that level as a doctor. It wasn't a you know a, a born gift you don't you don't emerge from the wo- womb like right ready for some brain surgery and here is my md uh. <laughs> so yeah no i think it's i think it's very interesting um okay so let's move away from marvel um let's talk about sherlock holmes from bbc sherlock yeah i mean it depends, because I think if you look at some of the older adaptations of, of Sherlock, as well as the, that one, mm-hmm. um, Sherlock Holmes can and does come across as a bit of a narcissist. I mean, you know, I know people don't like the films with uh, Jude Law and Robert Downey Jr., oh, but I I, I've kind of, I've, yeah, I've got quite a lot of affection for them. And I think he does come across as a teeny bit narcissistic in that as well. Yeah. As a character. What is it about Benedict Cumberbatch and uh, <laughs> Robert Downey Jr. playing narcissists. It's like, yes, we must do this. Um, but there has to be something of that in the character as Conan Doyle originally wrote him, Yeah, I think, for people to pull it out. And from what I recall of the Sherlock Holmes stories I read, there was a tiny bit of a superiority complex in there, which you could absolutely turn into full-blown narcissism. Yeah, absolutely. I think the interesting thing, though about why people like Sherlock Holmes is that particularly in the books there was a narcissistic com- you know he was a little bit narcissistic he he definitely felt superior to other people but he was not above being corrected and this is again one of those things which is that when you look at Doctor Strange when Doctor Strange um sort of has his accident and stuff like that he lashes out he he lashes out very very badly he he is rather nasty to the people around him. He wallows in self-pity. When Iron Man obviously has his... When Iron Man... When Tony Stark has his thing, he doesn't really have the ability to lash out because he's a prisoner. He's being tortured. (laughs) He's, you know, he's in fear of his life. He's just had very painful surgery in a, you know... And is probably in a significant amount of pain whilst being you know i don't know if i'm going to appear on the next youtube video of someone being decapitated exactly exactly um he's had open heart surgery and stuff like that in a cave like this is not he he doesn't really have time to just sort of 
this doesn't he doesn't have time to sort of deal with the ego thing or anything like that um and a lot of the kind of the aggression is introspective so he he turns it in on himself and it turns and it sort of feeds his own sense of self-loathing which we know that he does have already um for a lot of reasons he has a lot of self-loathing and a lot of um trauma which he's already gathered up even before this happens um so he reacts he doesn't really have time to react to that but he does react rather negatively um and that's again something which is key to a narcissist sherlock holmes on the other hand when sherlock holmes gets proven wrong um he can actually take it very gracefully like he there are versions where he looked down on women before he, he sort of tended to look down on women and then um you know he gets fooled by irene adler and instead of being like oh she played a trick or he he he's actually kind of amused he thinks she's amazing he he takes her picture and he corrects the way that he thinks and he he will be called out on poor behavior even though he sometimes does things without thinking he will be called out on it and doesn't tend to sulk whereas in a lot of the later adaptations particularly let me try that again particularly (laughs) bbc sherlock um he has a lot more of those narcissistic qualities that you don't see quite on the same level in the books which is that if he gets called out if he gets embarrassed or things like that he reacts very badly to it yeah um speaking of benedict cumberbatch playing a narcissist uh khan from star trek yes it's like i'm better at what everything and it's the conviction and okay yes he was genetically engineered over 100 years before to actually be physically better and smarter etc um but i i again find that a really interesting character and if you go back to the wrath of khan the original film rather Mm -hmm. than into darkness um again this is somebody who is so convinced of their own superiority that anyone who does not fall above a certain level Mm-hmm. falls below it and is therefore kind of banished from his esteem yeah. you have to bear in mind that kirk himself is actually a genius he doesn't yeah. act like it he acts like a complete wanker a lot of the time but he is actually a genius he is that clever yeah no he is it's <laughs> it's one of those things where you're like oh yeah i remember <laughs> so you know the wrath of khan it is kind of but it is is basically kind of battle of the narcissists because there, there's a little bit going on on either side <laughs> yeah i totally agree with that Okay, so I'm going to talk about one from a series called My Hero Academia, or if you want to say it in Japanese, Boku no Hero Academia. Um, And this is the character of Bakugo Katsuki. Um, Now, Bakugo is a really interesting character. He is the childhood bully of the main character, Midoriya. Um, And he's a really unpleasant person. A really, really unpleasant person, particularly to begin with. In the first episode we see him, he literally tells Midoriya to kill himself, which is awful. And I think a lot of people who've experienced bullying um, very much dislike Bakugo for the way that he behaves. He is a classic narcissist. Um, a classic young narcissist. And it's actually very interesting for me because this is one of the first times where I've actually seen a narcissist really really being shown as an actual main character um in a show without kind of any of the you know the 
the the apologetic oh he's only a narcissist because he was badly treated or or anything like that or he's not really a narcissist no he is he's 100% a narcissist this is a world where everyone develops superpowers from a young age um Bakugo's superpower is incredibly strong. He can literally create explosions from his hands. Before that, he was also incredibly clever. He got very good grades. He had a very good reading comprehension from a very young age. He's physically very athletic. He works incredibly hard. Um, now, what happened was that as a child, and we see this progress, as a child, we see that he is sort of surrounded by people who are not achieving as well as him. And he keeps being congratulated by everyone. And we literally see the moment where he goes, oh, I get it. It's because I'm amazing. And so he develops this, uh, this narcissism. And in particular, he bullies Midoriya because Midoriya was one of the few people who was born without a superpower. So Bakugo sees him as lesser. And he hates the fact that Midoriya treats him like an equal and that Midoriya will actually do things that he feels mean that Midoriya is looking down on him, which obviously really presses against his superiority complex. Yeah. Um, now, throughout the series, he then is challenged because Midoriya keeps then sort of beating him and becomes a bit of a rival. And it's been very interesting to watch the series as Bakugo kind of is forced to sort of shake up his feelings where he suddenly is no longer the best person in the school. Um, in fact, he's just sort of, he's very strong, but, um, you know, he suddenly goes, I can't beat these other people. We then get to see him working hard. We then get to see him sort of actually forming attachments to people. He has these massive anger management issues as well, which obviously has also been a bit of a wall between him and others. Um, and we get to explore a little bit of maybe why he behaves in certain ways that he does. And it's been this really slow and interesting progression. But one of the things which is most interesting to me is that in terms of Bakugo's character, he's actually weirdly popular in America, particularly with all West, and particularly with Western viewers. They tend that he has this very weird and very large fan club among Western viewers who really, really, really like him. Whereas sort of in typically in sort of Japanese um, sort of fan art and things like that, people like him, but they do recognize him as a bully. They recognize him as someone who's quite forceful and quite mean. Um, and but someone who's you know growing and the growth is the interesting part and that always really interested me that the sort of the west people were like oh i really like this narcissistic character because i remember watching it being like how can anyone like this person <laughs> <laughs> he's terrible but um yeah his growth has been very very interesting so if you want to see for me a narcissistic character who actually displays narcissism in a way that feels very realistic um, and actually shows the the real downsides to it rather than this romanticized narcissism my hero academia has got it in spades cool okay so from one narcissist to another i just want to touch on resand from a court of thorns and roses <laughs> see okay and without me foaming at the mouth so i'm gonna do my absolute best this is the tricky thing because, yes, if you said to me in book one, A Court of Thorns and Roses, is Rhysand a narcissist? I would lean towards, yeah, he probably is. Yeah. And then you move on in the series and suddenly all his narcissism gets 
gradually leached away and put on Tamlin instead. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So this, for me, is one of those examples of someone who is called a narcissist but doesn't actually display narcissistic behaviours. Until, weirdly enough, actually... Uh, the most recent book he's he's a little bit he's he's a narcissist again but in a very different way in a very controlling way he's displaying narcissistic behaviors but the problem is that these narcissistic behaviors are the only time where he's not being recognized as being a narcissist i mean it's basically contrivance is what it comes down to so it is really a poor characterization issue yeah um, but it's it, yeah, it's one of these things where uh, this is a character who, who everyone's like, oh, you know, he's a little bit of a narcissist. It's like no, he's pre- he 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 cares about the way he looks. Um, he does have the he's charismatic. Um, he's very powerful. He's obviously very rich. All of that jazz. Um, no, 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 Madeline, you you said it wrong. It's like <laughs> he is the most powerful high lord in over four centuries. Uh, yes. Uh, Which, you know, we're told at length. At length. Many times. The most powerful. But his powers have strange limitations when it uh, when It's it matters convenient most. to the plot. Yeah. Yes. Um... <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think it's a good example of, certainly in the first book, of when you're playing somebody as an antagonist, mm. um, how they can how they can show that i'd even go as far as to say you go into the second book and find out that it was a massive front and he wasn't actually narcissistic at all yeah absolutely. Um, i obviously would not recommend reading further but you know that's my opinion yeah um yeah i completely agree in that you can have a narcissistic front um but yeah this is this is i wanted to mention this character because this is a character who um is labelled as a narcissistic, who then isn't narcissistic, but then does have narcissistic behaviours, which are not the bits which are being labelled as narcissistic in the most recent book. Like, withholding information from his wife, controlling the people around him, being manipulative. These are classic, very toxic, narcissistic traits, and these are not the things which are being picked up on. (laughs) No, they're really not. And I don't think we're supposed to think they're abusive, even though they are. Um, Basically, don't take writing advice from SJ Mask, guys. Just don't. (laughs) (laughs) I still like her books. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with liking them. There's nothing wrong with enjoying them and buying everything she writes, but I really wouldn't take writing lessons from her. <laughs> I would I would be very wary of of taking uh, of sort of yeah. I used to love Resand as a character. I thought, "Oh yeah, how dreamy." Um I mean, I was always a Lucian girl, but you know what I mean. Um and now I'm like, "Run, run for the hills. Run for the hills, people." This is yeah. not a person you want to be in a relationship with. <laughs> so, yeah. So these are some of the fan-favourite narcissists um, who we wanted to discuss. There are obviously a lot more um, whom we haven't brought up, but we are going to finish it up there. Uh, before we go, I did want to just very quickly pose the question of, have you ever written a narcissist character? Jules, have uh, you, or, not... or do you have a character with narcissistic traits? Yeah, I wouldn't say I'd deliberately written a full-on narcissist, not mm. yet anyway. Um, but I would say that Lucas has narcissistic tendencies. Yeah, I was thinking that as well. And again, this is based on actual skill as well with him. 
you know, uh, but he yeah, does see himself he... as superior. <laughs> he does see himself as superior. Um, he also sees himself as an outsider, and he does have that sort of strange superiority inferiority complex going on, which tends to go hand in hand with narcissism. Yeah, um, the whole sort of I'm an outsider. Because he, you know, spoiler alert, guys, he's in the wrong century. He's not yeah. where he's supposed to be. Um, he is a musical genius. He knows he's so much better than everyone else. It's not something that could really be hidden from him. Yeah. Um, but he forgets that other people are valid because of this this great skill. So, um, yeah. I mean, and honestly, for all that he kind of gets a bit of a redemption arc, a lot of it is based on the fact that he falls in love with someone who can't ever really love him back because she loves somebody else yeah um it was it was never going to be it was never going to be a polyamorous thing guys i'm sorry i know no. that it's very popular now to say that rather than the love triangle but this was a case of that's not going to work <laughs> yeah no, definitely he was i mean he was also quite racist against kieran yeah, there was a there was a big anti-Irish thing there going on, mostly because he just hated Kieran. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't really hate the Irish. It was just kind of no, like, just... oh well, anything, anything to anything to say against you. It's why I really liked that little extra bit you wrote where you got to see Lucas actually coming to understand things. For me, that felt more like his. That felt more like a redemption for me because it was, it was internal. It wasn't just about what you mean that the bit that happened after he died, like yeah. right after. <laughs> Um, yeah, there is a short story which, you know, if you're not part of my newsletter, you probably missed it a couple of Christmases ago. But don't worry, it's going to be in the second um, anthology of Unveiled Stories, which should hopefully still come out this year. Yay! But you're right, that that is really the, the time. It's literally the 11th hour or, you know, it was 11.30 on the clock of redemption. <laughs> yeah, um, but it was that was the moment I was like, I actually really like Lucas now. <laughs> he's redeemed himself but he's already dead um so i think in terms of my characters i think i have a few characters who have narcissistic tendencies i think when rufus was younger he had a few narcissistic tendencies um which kind of was put to a stop after milan died yeah cause... see i mean if if it's pre-book um then yeah maybe but he, i would never see luke uh sir rufus sorry i'm saying lucas again there rufus as narcissistic simply because he cares too much about other people yeah absolutely and it's almost his achilles heel it is yeah i mean he was he was a little bit more self-centered a little bit more kind of uh, you know, overconfident and stuff like that for a brief period when he was younger, when he'd just been become, you know, he'd become a magi, he'd, you know, he was all... <laughs> but then, I mean, to me, that would be just cockiness, a bit of vanity or a bit of arrogance. Yeah. It would never be narcissism. narcissism Whereas yeah. I would actually say that Zachary probably yes. is a bit narcissistic. I was going to say, yeah, Zachary is definitely a little bit narcissistic. Um, I don't think he is anymore. <laughs> I think there's just a little bit too much self-loathing at this point. But he does definitely have narcissistic behaviours, um, and you do see that. He is still a very empathetic person, but he is someone who very much sees everything in a... in wants to see everything in a very black and white way and doesn't like it when it isn't black and white. Which I think means the thing is... He's right and every, everyone else is wrong until he's <laughs> wrong, and then... <laughs> I think the thing is Rufus embraces being 
more empathetic, whereas Zachary doesn't really want to be. No, um, he definitely keeps it. Zachary will will be empathetic to people he feels who people who feels are vulnerable, um, and in some ways, therefore, beneath him. Uh, so children, women, things like that, and that that's actually a reflection of the kind of the abuse that he faced as a child. So he cares about people, but it's definitely in a very very different way. So he definitely has narcissistic tendencies. Um, I would, I wouldn't say Kestrel. No one's really met Kestrel properly. Has narcissistic tendencies, but there's just a tiny bit of it in there, just like a little drop. Again, I'd put that more as arrogance rather yeah. than narcissism. Yeah, I think yeah, you're probably right. She's she's just she is a little bit arrogant, um, and she does sometimes need to be shaken a little bit in order to see things in a different way. So, um, I should probably write a narcissist character. I'm gonna make a narcissist character a after this proper one. It's like um, obviously people won't have read Harker and Blackthorn yet, but I'm like I wonder if I feel like um. Rebecca could have gone in that direction because yeah. she's very much a Sherlock Holmes character, but I don't think she cares enough about how other people perceive her to actually be narcissistic. And weirdly, that is one of the things about narcissism. It's not just self-obsession, it's obsession with how other people see you, which I think is what I was trying to say earlier, but forgot. <laughs> so I was trying to say it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're you're entirely right there. It's It's about, because again, it's about other people seeing you so that they praise you, so that they love you. Uh, whereas someone who is genuinely just self-confident enough not to need to be propped up by others, not to need, you know, lots of grandstanding and things like that, um, is is less likely to be an actual narcissist. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Before we go, um, it is time for our Dissecting Dragons recommendation of the week. And this week, this is coming from both Jules and I, and we've touched on it in this episode. We would like to recommend the Marvel TV series Loki. Yes. Um, it's finished now. First five episodes. Is it five? Is it five or six? It's five. Is it five? Is it five? Anyway, is it it's five, five or six. It's around <laughs> half a dozen episodes, guys. Yes. Um, and I mean, I would just watch it for Tom Hiddleston's performance, um, as well as I mean, Owen Wilson, fantastic in that. I've just forgotten the actress who plays Sylvie, but brilliant. Um, I was so prepared to dislike a female Loki. I was so prepared for them to mess that up for it to yeah. just be this sexy just just to just to do another hella character but not as well um as taika watiti did and it wasn't that at all i found sylvie to be really engaging i found the the my god the cgi was fantastic as well the special yes. effects it was really cool they went full out beautifully written really really engaging some fantastic acting in that um, very much well worth watching. Um, so yeah, if you haven't already seen Loki, check it out. And on that note, guys, we're going to say thanks very much for listening. Do get in touch with us. Who are some of your favourite narcissistic characters? Do you disagree with what we've said? Do you agree with what we've said? Do you have anything that you think we've missed? We'd love to hear from you. Remember, you can get in touch with us via our Facebook, our Twitter or our Tumblr, both individually or through the Dissecting Dragons pages. 
And on that note, guys, thanks very much for listening, and we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye! You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.